Isaiah 53 is the heart of the Christian message. That Christ died in the place of sinners. That He was pierced for our transgressions. And that with His wounds we are healed. By His punishment we are forgiven by God. And that is true for everyone who believes what He has heard from us. Who believes this gospel message. This is the heart of the Christian faith. And now chapters 54 and 55 encourage us as believers in that message to respond to it. And what is our response? I mentioned it already this morning. He starts off in the beginning of chapter 54. Sing. (laughs) Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who once were barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of God. Because God has done a miraculous work in you. You are not the old you anymore. You're a new creation. So sing. Sing and rejoice. And further he says, prepare for a great in-gathering of believers into this community, into the holy city. People from every nation and tribe on the face of the earth. Prepare. Expect great things from God. And he says further to his saints, listen, fear not, for you will not be ashamed Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. In God's new covenant grace toward you, all that former shame, all that sin is a thing of the past by His mercy. So sing, rejoice, Fear not. Take heart. This is the message. And in verses 1 to 10, we looked at last week, chapter 54, he expresses these things to a people that he speaks of in terms of a bride, right? Remember that from last week? She was a wife who was barren and unfruitful, but now by the grace of God will have so many children, she's got to enlarge her tent to keep them all. Verses 1 to 10, God's dealings with his people under the new covenant are spoken of in terms of a bride. In verses 11 to 17, they're spoken of in terms of a... Go ahead and take a look. See if you can get the overall image there. Verses 1 to 10, she's a bride. Verses 11 to 17, she's a... It's a city, isn't it? You see the city imagery there? In verses 1 to 10... This new covenant people are spoken of as a barren wife, a wife formerly barren who is now made fruitful and restored through the covenant of peace. In verses 11 to 17, they're spoken of as a broken down city which will be rebuilt and inhabited by a great number in the new covenant. So verses 11 to 17 are our text this morning and really are just continuing on the same themes that we've seen but uh, enlarging on them in some really encouraging and wonderful ways. Verses 11 to 17, there are no commands in these verses. These verses are simply exulting in what God would do for his people through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are here today to be encouraged by these promises, by these assurances of the new covenant, to take hope and confidence in all that God himself would do for his people. Isaiah 54, verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony 
and you lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. And whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Beginning in verse 11, the Lord addresses these people in three ways. He addresses them, first of all, as afflicted. Oh, afflicted one, afflicted by God they were. For judgment on their own sin, they were afflicted by him. And their greatest affliction was yet to come, the captivity, the great captivity of God's people whereby they would be expelled from his house, cast out and taken away to a far country. Afflicted one, storm-tossed. He speaks to them like a people who are blown about in a raging storm and the lightning and the dark fury of his wrath is all overhead and they're just blown about like a ship on a sea and not comforted. You remember how chapter 40 started? The whole second half of the book started with what word? Comfort, right? The Lord said to his prophet, comfort my people, speak words of comfort to them. But before they were comforted, they were in misery underneath the wrath and the judgment of God. And he speaks to them now in that estate as people who are not comforted by God. And that's the way they were up to this point. And maybe there is Someone here this morning and you identify with these descriptions. Afflicted. You feel like God, you are under the affliction of God. That God himself is afflicting you. That he is after you. That he is standing against you. That his judgment has fallen upon you. You feel storm-tossed. Like there's no solid ground under your feet. You're just being blown about in life and you can't get anything solid underneath you. And your soul is troubled, not comforted. Just find just a turmoil inside. And friend, I want to remind you that that's where the law of God leaves a person. It leaves him under the judgment of God. The law itself leaves a person with no comfort. It condemns him. For what does the law say? If you disobey, you will surely die. If you do not keep all these commandments, these statutes, then surely the curses of the covenant will come upon you. The gospel, on the other hand, the gospel sets a man free. It sets him free. It does for him what he fails to do under the old covenant. Under the new covenant, 
The Lord does not say, do and live. He says, it is done. It is finished. And He calls upon you to believe in Him who completed all that God commanded and ordained on the behalf of His people. This is the good news. This is the comfort. This is the hope that God lays out before these people in the second half of this book to which he points them. He gives them this hope. But ancient Jerusalem would would be afflicted, storm-tossed, not comforted. The city itself would lay burned and in ruins for 70 years under the judgment of God. And yet, to these people who would read these words when all that they'd ever known had been destroyed and ruined under the justice of their God, to these people, God gives the hope of a new Jerusalem, of a new covenant, a future far more glorious than anything that she had ever experienced in her history. And in this, the Lord promises four wonderful things. I want you to see those this morning in chapter 54, beginning with the very, uh, well, with verse number 11. God promises, first of all, that the new Jerusalem would be resplendent in glory. That it would be resplendent in glory. He says, Behold, lift up your eyes. I will set your stones in antimony. I will set the stones of this new Jerusalem in antimony. Antimony is like a shiny, metallic, black, gray type of mineral. And I have looked quite a bit and haven't found really any record of its being used in normal construction processes. But I will tell you how it is used, and there are a few biblical references to this, and that is it was used as a cosmetic. It was crushed up, and it was used to make um, kind of a mascara or an eyeshadow. And it's as if here in this image, the Lord pictures this city and the shiny metallic mortar kind of highlights these stones and makes them pop, highlights the beauty of this glorious city. I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundation stones in sapphire. Or it could be translated lapis lazuli. This is a uh, a stone, a gemstone with a striking sort of deep blue color. Lapis also, interestingly, was famously used as a cosmetic in ancient Egypt. Maybe you've seen pictures of these Egyptian people with this dark, with this kind of really deep blue shading on their faces, right? That's this. And it's as, so I think it's as if these two images of verses 1 to 10, the bride image, and verses 11 to 17, the building image, are kind of merged into one. Here's a building who's putting on her adornment. She's making herself up. She's being made up by her God. She's being adorned. She's being dressed up. She's being made beautiful by the Lord. And he goes on in verse 12 and he says, I will make your pinnacles, the, the big highest points of the, uh, the towers that surround the city at various points in the wall. I will make your pinnacles of agate. Your gates, I will make them of carbuncles, which is a word that just means something very shiny and sparkling. And I will make all your walls of precious stones. Now, can you picture this? Picture a huge city, an ancient city, surrounded by these massive walls. Now, what do you normally make walls out of? Well, whatever stone you can find nearby, right? Hard, good, solid stone quarried nearby to make these walls. But this, this wall 
is going to be made out of precious stones, the entire thing out of the most rare gemstones on the planet. In other words, what is God saying about this city? He's saying, this city is going to be resplendent. It's not going to be an ordinary city. This Jerusalem that I'm talking about, this Jerusalem that I'm pointing you to in your mind's eye, this future coming glory is resplendent. It is a city that is beautiful. It is fit to be presented to Christ. It is so glorious that it is fit to be the eternal habitation of God himself. This city bride. And you have this sort of mixing of metaphors in a number of other places in the scriptures. Perhaps one of the most well-known is the 21st chapter of the last book in our Bible, the book of Revelation. You remember there what happens? An angel comes to John, the one to whom this vision is given, and says, Come, I will show you what? I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb of God. And then John says, I was carried away in the Spirit, to a great high mountain, and coming down out of heaven, I saw, what? A holy city. The new Jerusalem, he says. Coming down out of heaven from God. So the angel says, I will show you the bride, and he looks and he sees a city. And again, you have the mixing of these metaphors here. This city he saw in his vision, came down out of heaven from God where she was being prepared in all of her resplendent glory. And as she came down, John saw that this city was adorned like a bride adorned for her wedding day, resplendent in her jewelry and in her makeup and in her presentation of her hair and everything was just beautiful right he said this city was adorned like a bride ready for her wedding day she was adorned with every kind of jewel jasper and amethyst and agate and emerald and onyx and carnelian and on and on he goes she was adorned and this bride he says is made up of all believers united together for the foundation of this city is marked out by the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And over the gates of the cities, there are twelve gates, three on each side, the north, the south, the east, the west. On the gates of this city are the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he says that this new Jerusalem has no temple. In fact, it seems from the description that the whole city itself is the temple. Because God dwells in every corner of that city. And God is the temple and the, his, his lamb. But that t- city is a perfect cube like the ancient holy of holies. And it comes down out of heaven from God. Paul calls it the bride of Christ. And Peter calls it the temple that's built with living stones. That is you and I, the whole church that is in Christ Jesus. This is that new Jerusalem, the bride coming prepared for her husband. And the point here in this text, Isaiah sees that this bride city will be resplendent in glory. John alludes to that as well in, John, in Revelation 21 when he says that he sees this city coming down out of heaven having the glory of God himself. The glory of this city is the glory of God. It's emanating everywhere the Lord is and the Lord's glory is emanating from that place. So, you put, these, put yourself in these people's place, right? Let's say the generation after Isaiah, who saw all of these threats and all of these um, warnings of judgment in the first half of the book coming true, 
on all of the nations around them. They're, watch, they're literally watching this happen. And then they themselves are taken into captivity. And all of the years that they're there, they're thinking about this prophecy that God made through Isaiah. And they're looking at old Jerusalem, which uh, has been torn down, which at one time was glorious, right? Remember the city. It was a glorious place. Solomon built the temple with all kinds of jewels and with precious metals. And the people of the old covenant were glorious, right? The tribes themselves, the 12 tribes of Israel were symbolized on the breastplate of the high priest with what? With precious stones, right? They were a glorious people. They had a glorious city, but so much of that glory was merely external. And that nation rebelled against their God and experienced all of the shame and all of the judgment that God had prophesied and predicted would come upon them for their sin. And now here's a people who are holding on for hope to what? To Isaiah's words, his promise of a new covenant and a new Jerusalem. Isaiah foresees the day when that new covenant will produce a city that is so much more glorious than the old that they could never imagine it. So much more glorious than anything that they had ever experienced. Such was yet to come. This is what Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you want, you can turn over there for a moment before we come right back here to Isaiah. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is contrasting the new covenant with the old covenant. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in verse 6, he says, God has made us, that is, himself and the other apostles, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, that is a reference to the law of God, not ministers of the letter, but of the Spirit. This is promised by Christ in the new covenant, right? I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Jesus said, I must go away in order that the God, that outpouring of the Spirit in the new covenant might happen. The writers of the scripture said, until Christ was raised, that Spirit had not yet been poured out. But now, Paul says, we are, we are ministers of this new covenant. This great out, end time outpouring upon the world. We are ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, right? What does the law say? If you disobey, you will die. But the spirit gives life. How's that? Well, through the obedience of Jesus Christ that by the spirit is applied to us, given to us as a free gift and worked out in us in the process of sanctification. So he says, we're ministers of something much more glorious than anything that Israel ever experienced in the Old Testament. We are ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Verse seven, now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. That covenant and glory, which he says was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, this is the ministry of the Old Covenant, then the ministry of righteousness much must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For it was, for if what was being brought to an end, 
that is the old covenant and the old Jerusalem that that covenant sanctified, if what, if, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, and it did, then much more will what is permanent have glory. That is the glory of the new covenant, the new Jerusalem, the New Testament church will be greater than the glory of anything in Old Covenant Israel. And one day, that glory that is even now being displayed across the globe, I mean, just think about the gloriousness of that. Where was God's glory manifest in the Old Covenant? Centered in the city of Jerusalem and among a pretty localized group of people, now that city is expanding to cover the globe and God's being glorified from the heart by transformed people all around the world in an unprecedented way. I mean, nothing, nothing like that ever happened before. Nothing like this. We are experiencing that now. And one day, that glory, the glory of this new Jerusalem will be fully revealed. It'll, we will be fully glorified. The church will be fully perfected and purified. Our souls will be utterly perfected. Our bodies will be raised in a glory that we don't know anything about now. Buried in dishonor, the Bible says, but raised in glory, right? So this whole um, resplendent glory is being manifest in the new covenant and will be fully revealed when Christ is fully revealed. This new covenant, uh, this new Jerusalem rather, is resplendent in glory. There's a second thing to see here in this uh, passage if you want to go back to Isaiah chapter 54. And that's in verse 13 and 14. And that is this, that the new Jerusalem would be exclusively characterized by righteousness and peace. The new Jerusalem would be exclusively characterized by righteousness and peace. Here's the way he says it, verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. The new covenant city is the city of righteousness. This was predicted, you remember, way back in the very first chapter of this book, that the Lord would come and redeem his people. And back in chapter 1, verse 26, Isaiah says, the Lord says through Isaiah, afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And of course, John, in his vision, says, that in Revelation 21, verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter the new Jerusalem, nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false. You will not find those people in the new Jerusalem. It is a whole community characterized by righteousness. And that righteousness brings peace with God. This is obtained by Christ's own righteousness and his death. Great shall be the peace of your children. It is peace that is obtained for us, peace with God that Christ Jesus obtains for us by his death, right? Remember what we just read in the last chapter? Upon him was the chastisement or the judgment, the punishment. On him was the chastisement that brought us what? That brought us peace, what do you mean peace? Peace with God through his righteousness and his death. And friends, I just have to say, ultimately, peace with God is not because of our own righteousness. It's not that we're looking at a new Jerusalem that is inherently righteous in every way, such that they are fully at peace with God. This will still be a city in, 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 until ultimate glory, this will still be a city filled with sinners saved by grace. This righteousness, this peace with God is ultimately a peace 
that is founded in a righteousness not their own. It's peace that comes through the chastisement of him who took their place. But that righteousness brings peace with God. And the truth is, in our sin, we are at enmity with God. But he came to establish with us what we saw last week in verse 10, the covenant of peace, right? And in that covenant of peace, rather than bearing up under the covenant curses for our own disobedience, we receive the blessings of obedience That is the obedience of Jesus Christ himself. So that we are finally at peace with our maker. We're in the new covenant, in the new Jerusalem. Peace reigns. And this righteousness and this peace, notice in verse 8, excuse me, verse 13, (laughs) this righteousness and this peace characterizes all of the children of the new Jerusalem. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children, and in righteousness it shall be established. So what does it mean to be taught by the Lord? What does it mean for all of the children of this city that they are all taught by the Lord? Well, if you want to hold your finger here once again and turn to John 6, that might be helpful. John chapter 6 is a place where Jesus himself quotes this text. And by way of explaining the unbelief of people around him, there were many people who resisted the Lord's word. He says this by way of explanation, verse 44, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up, and that's a word for resurrection, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's just stop there for a minute. Jesus is teaching several things here, right? First of all, he's teaching moral inability. We are unable to come to Christ on our own. No man can come to me. But he's also teaching the effective call of God. For God draws a people to himself. And the effectiveness of that is seen in the fact that the one that the Father draws does come because in the end he is resurrected by the Lord Jesus Christ to a life of glory. So he comes. All who are drawn come and all who are come, all who come are raised. And now Jesus says, verse 45, here's the quotation now. It is written in the prophets, Isaiah 54, and they will all be taught by God. So what he said in verse 44 was, God does what to them? He draws them. In verse 45, quoting the text, God teaches them. And the explanation of that, that phrase then is this. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So what is Jesus saying? That those who are drawn by God or that those who are taught by God, they all come to Christ. They all believe in Christ. They all have eternal life and are raised up on the last day. So this is what Jesus says. This is the people that are taught by God. They come to me, they believe in me, and I give to them eternal life. So Isaiah foresees then a new covenant community, new Jerusalem, that will be a community of people who do what? Who come to the Lord Jesus who believe in him, who have eternal life. This is all the population of that new Jerusalem. Jeremiah likewise foresees that day when he says this wonderful assurance, this wonderful promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There's that same language. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. There is no need for that, for they will all know me, he says, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. John in his letter says, I don't have any need to to teach you because you're taught of God. This is the teaching of God that Isaiah sees that ensures a coming, a believing, and a raising up on the last day. And Jeremiah and Isaiah see a whole city, a whole community filled with people who know the Lord. This is the glorious assurance that he's holding out for a people who look around a city and see so many who are rebelling against their God. And when Jesus died, he held up that cup and he said, this, cu- this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Jerusalem below may have been filled with many who rejected and crucified their Lord. The old covenant was brought to a visible end with the destruction of that ancient city and its temple in A.D. 70. The things that have been made were shaken in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And now the new covenant creates a new Jerusalem populated exclusively by children who are taught by God, supernatural children of Abraham, who've come to Christ and believed in him. And that city, friends, that city that is resplendent in glory and populated by a people who know the Lord and are taught by God, that city is spreading abroad right now to the right and to the left, possessing the nations for the last 2,000 years. It's been so. Isaiah predicts. He holds their eyes up to such a glorious future. Can you imagine a Jerusalem like that, he says. Thirdly, he says, it will be a city that will be favored and protected by God. Look at the middle of verse 14 now. Go back to Isaiah 45, 54, excuse me, Isaiah 54. And verse 13 in the middle, 14 in the middle of the verse. You shall be far from oppression, he says, to this new Jerusalem. You shall be far from oppression. Well, that's not where they were now. They were oppressed, all right by all of the nations around them for their own sin. But now he promises a day, a city that will be far from oppression. For you shall not fear, he says. You should be far from terror, for it shall not come near you. In verse 15, if anyone does stir up strife, he says, it is not what? It's not from, it's not from me. Okay, now, had their oppression by various nations been from God up till now? Absolutely. The Lord was judging his people through their oppressors. But now he holds up a day in which there will be no more oppression, no more anger, no more judgment. I will not be angry with you, will not rebuke you. Rather, he says... End of verse 15, whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Why? Because he will protect his church. And that protection rests on his sovereignty as the creator of all things. This is what he says in verse 16. Hey, here's why you can be comforted that you're protected, that that you're not going to be harmed because I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. Now, let's, let's take the end of that and work our way backwards. So here's a weapon, right? It's going to be used for something. Maybe it'll be turned even against the people. 
Where did this weapon come from? Well, it came from the fire of coals. It came out of the furnace. It was worked on by the smith. Well, who controls that fire? The, the blacksmith controls the fire, right? So there's real human agency here. The, the weapon comes from the fire. The fire is kindled by the smith. But who created the smith? This is where God goes. God goes to ultimate causation, right? He's not dealing with immediate. He's dealing with ultimate cause. What is the ultimate cause of all? And the answer, the only biblical answer is God. I created the smith who makes the fire, who creates the weapon to do whatever the immediate purpose of that person is. Ultimately, I am sovereign over the smith and the fire and the weapon and the purpose. And he says, I have also created the ravager to destroy. And God does. If there's destruction, has God not done it? He says, all that happens is my work. I am sovereign in all of the affairs of men. Now, what's the big deal about that? Why make a point of God's sovereignty here? The point is to encourage this new Jerusalem that God is for them, and if God is for them, who can be what? Who can be against them? So he says, verse 17, no weapon fashioned against you shall succeed. Why? Because a man may produce a weapon for the purpose of succeeding against the new Jerusalem. In, in his heart may be this purpose of the destruction of this great city, but God is sovereign over all. And if the sovereign Lord is favoring and protecting his people, then nothing but nothing in all the world can destroy them. And folks, we need to remember that. We need to remember that when we're living in the midst of a hostile world, a culture that hates Christianity, a world that is becoming more and more anti-Christian in so many parts of this world, a culture that is seemingly going post-Christian. As we live in this world and we hear about Christians being persecuted for righteousness sakes, we, we need to remember this, this account. Who is it that controls the world? Well, we say, well, now the Bible says Satan is the God of this world. Well, I want to ask you, who's the God over Satan? Right? We go back to ultimate causation here. And God says, you don't have to fear. Listen, the church will stand. The new Jerusalem will not be shaken. No weapon fashioned against this city will be successful. My kingdom will stand. Why? Because I'm sovereign over all. And I allow all kinds of things in my world, but only for my good purposes. Now, I will grant that there are some ways that we cannot trace out the purposes of God in what he ordains. And the church goes through really difficult times in many, many places. But we have God's assurance that he is for this city, right? That we're not, we're not sitting back here huddling and saying, oh no, what will happen to us? What will happen to the church? What will happen to Christianity? I'll tell you what happened to Christianity. It'll stand till the end of time. Because he protects this city. No weapon will be able to be formed against it because he's sovereign over all. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Or still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His wrath and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. On earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that brings us to the final thing in this text that Isaiah revealed, and that is that the new Jerusalem will be vindicated by 
the Lord himself. This city, this bride, these people will be vindicated by the Lord himself. Look at the last part of verse 17. He says to the city, You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This is the heritage. Vindication is the heritage of who? Of the servants of the Lord. Well, now, have we heard that phrase before? We've been hearing it all along, ever since chapter 42, but not in the plural, in the singular, right? We've been reading it again and again. Chapter 42 and 49 and 50 and 53, and now here, of the servant of the Lord, the great servant of the Lord who alone would accomplish God's will in every respect. But now he speaks in the plural of the servants of the Lord because all of the benefits that come to the singular servant for his perfect obedience are shared by all of those who are united to him. They are the servants of the Lord because they are united to the servant of the Lord. They are Israel because they are united to him who is that true Israel. And Christ's heritage, and because of that, then the heritage of Christ's people is this. What does the text say? What is our heritage? What is the heritage of the servant that is shared by the many servants? It is this. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. That's our heritage. It's vindication. Refuting all of those who are naysayers. This is the heritage of Jesus Christ. Now, did that happen for the servant of the Lord? Singular. Was he vindicated by God in the face of those who rose against him in judgment? Was he? Was he vindicated? Huh, I'll tell you. When we looked at him, we considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. They said around the cross, He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. You hear all those tongues raised in judgment against him? He died apparently abandoned by God. I'm going to ask you, was that the last word? Or was he vindicated? Well, absolutely he was. First Timothy 3, verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. He was vindicated. How was he vindicated? Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, He was descended from David according to the flesh, and, listen to this, He was declared, publicly declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. That's the means that God used to do this. By what? By His resurrection from the dead. This was God's vindication. This was God's public declaration. This is my son. I am well pleased with him. I will raise him from the dead. You hurled accusations upon him upon the cross. And he died apparently under the judgment of God. But he is vindicated. The resurrection was God's public vindication of his son by the power of the spirit. But I want to tell you now, listen, Christ's vindication has ramifications for the entire new covenant community. Romans chapter 4 makes it explicit. 
Here's what it says. Christ was delivered up, that is to be crucified. He was delivered up for our what? For our transgressions. That's Isaiah 53, isn't it? And then look at the next line. And he was raised for our justification. Well, that's Isaiah 54. Their vindication is from me. He was raised for whose vindication? For ours. And the word justification here in Romans 4.25 is just another translation of the word vindication. It refers to a legal declaration of righteousness in the face of accusations to the contrary. And in fact, the Hebrew word translated vindication here in Isaiah 54 is just that word, righteousness. It literally reads this way. Their righteousness is from me, declares the Lord. Who? The servants of the Lord... They will refute every tongue that rises against them to judge them. Why? Because their righteousness is from me. That's why the Lord says they are justified. They're vindicated. And this is the great heritage of the new covenant. The vindication of every tongue that rises against us in judgment. Not, listen to me, not because we ourselves are righteous because we're so much better than everybody else. That's not the reason we're going to be vindicated, but because we have a righteousness that is from the Lord. Their righteousness is from me. What is that righteousness? It is the very righteousness of the servant of the Lord himself, given to us by virtue of that gracious union that we have with Christ by the power of the Spirit of God. He was crucified for his people's sins. He was raised for their vindication. And I tell you, there are so many tongues that rise against us in judgment. Aren't there? Have you heard the voice of your conscience rising against you in judgment? That voice within your heart and in your mind saying, you are wrong. You are messed up. No. You're guilty. You are unclean. And that voice, you know what people try to do with that voice? That tongue of conscience that rises up against them? They will do everything they can to ignore that voice, won't they? They'll argue with that little voice. They'll make excuses to their own little voice. They will drown out that little voice with all kinds of activity and noise, and Netflix, and parties. They will do everything they can to not be condemned by the voice of conscience. But you know that voice. Or do you know that another tongue that rises against us in judgment is the voice of the law? And God gives his law that brings no salvation in itself, but it does work this wonderful thing, this awful thing, it delineates what our conscience is already telling us, and it instructs our consciences. It puts a line in the sand, and it says, okay, you see where you are? That's where you should be, and you have crossed a line. And now, that wrong that you feel by the law of nature is magnified. It becomes exceedingly sinful because the law has come in and draw a line. Now you are not just messed up. You are a transgressor. You have crossed the line. You knew where God's boundaries were and you stepped right over them. 
Have you ever heard the voice of the law calling out to you for your condemnation? He's a transgressor and he deserves justice. Oh, where can I go to be rid of that? How can I silence the voice of the law? And I tell you, some people will just run from the law. They will not show their face in the church. They will not sit under careful, expository, week-by-week preaching because you're going to come to passages that are going to nail you because God's law has manifested your sinfulness and your active rebellion against God. The voice rises up against us in judgment. And then there is the voice and the tongue of Satan himself that rises against us in judgment before the very throne of God. The accuser of the brethren, he is called, right? Who stands, as it were, to point to every transgression that you have made against your God, every corruption in your heart and in your soul that manifests itself. Look, he says, there is a person who is rebellion, rebelling against you, who's violating your law, who is going against everything that is good and right. That one's mine. But the Lord says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their vindication, their refuting every tongue that rises against them in judgment because of the righteousness that I give them myself. (laughs) They stand delivered and freed That righteousness has cleansed their conscience, has kept the law in their place, has defeated and cast down the accuser of the brethren. So who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God that vindicates. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. That's the hope that is held out for that city, that new Jerusalem, that hope of the new covenant that is in the blood of Christ. And I just have to put it before you this morning and ask whether you are in fact a citizen of that New Jerusalem. Are you a part of that new covenant through faith and the new birth? Have you been born again into that city above? Because I'll tell you, everybody wants to read this text and appropriate it for themselves. How many times have you walked into an office or seen somebody post on their social media feed? This verse, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. Right? Everybody loves that verse. I want to ask you, does that verse apply to you? Or are you misappropriating it? Oh, brethren, oh, friends, you who are hearing the sermon this morning, I ask you whether you are a part of that new covenant city. Or to ask it another way, have you come to Christ? Have you believed on him? Have you been taught by the Lord? And listen, there is a kind of teaching that is only external. You can come in and you can sit here and listen to sermons and you can sort of believe it on one level. And I'm sort of taught. But we're talking about a teaching that is far more than that. We're talking about a teaching that is internal and effective. The kind of teaching that brings a person to the place where they will be raised up on the last day. Has that happened to you? Have you come to Christ like that? Not just hearing and saying, well, you know, I believe all that on the surface, but whether that has caused a new birth in you, that's what I'm asking. This 
If that is the case, this is your heritage. So rejoice. So sing. Don't despair, believer, for you have been justified by grace and are destined for resplendent glory. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word of assurance today. Thank you for these promises, these comforts. Oh, Father, for those who have only heard the voices raised up against them, we pray that today they would be enabled to hear the voice of the gospel and by your grace, that they would be born in this city. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.